Well, good morning. Thanks for being here, church. Don't you love that sweet grandmotherly woman who's just led us into our, uh, our message each and every uh, Sunday here? Well, uh, today we are talking about uh, our fourth uh, decision. I decided to stay. want to let you know that we have decided to actually uh, extend this particular um, topic one more week. So this is part one, and uh, next week is part two, and that's going to end our series. You're not going to want to miss that. It's going to be awesome. Well, uh, it is great to be here with you. And um, my name is Jerry, uh, one of the pastors here. And it's my joy to um, open up God's word with you. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be here this morning. The book of Mark chapter 5. Now, um, as we're talking about this idea of my story, I want to make something very clear this morning. We had an interesting conversation with somebody over the last week about, uh, man, well, you know, isn't this series, could not this series be perceived as kind of a psychological, self-help, psychobabble kind of series, right? Like who, even if they were apart from being a Christian, wouldn't want to hear, you know, concepts about how to have a better life and how to live a better story, so what is really separating this series from that kind of concept of anybody being like, well, you know what? Yeah, I could make some decisions to be healthier or I want to start something new or I want to stop some destructive habit in my life. I want to be a better parent, whatever. Well, I just want to say this morning that absolutely, you know, that, that can be part of what anybody would feel. But we have tried to design this series in such a way that says, yes, we do want you to be able to tell a better story at the end of your life, but not for your glory, for God's glory. And there's a big difference there, right? Because you could say, well, I want to I wanna be glorified by all these great decisions that I made or whatever, and that's self-centered and man-centered and wrong. Or you can say, I want to look back at the end of my days, and I want to be able to tell a great story, but it's not for my own pride. It is a reflection of what Jesus has done through me. So that's kind of the baseline of what we want to do here this morning and what we've been trying to do throughout this whole series. And I hope that you've heard that and that it's resonated with you. Someday we're all going to be standing before God. And that's the ultimate reason that we want to do this. Listen to a couple of these passages of scripture. I'll read them to you. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Paul says, so then each of us will give an account of himself before God, right? You remember back when you were in college or high school or elementary school or junior high, uh, when you middle school where you had tests and you had to give an account that day came where you had to sit there and you had to write out and here's what I know and this is to be true and you need to, in a sense, judge this. I'm giving an account for what I was given and maybe in your workplace, that's part of annual reviews and that sort of thing or you're the project manager and you're meeting with the board and you got to give an account for what you did. That's a scary moment. And what we're getting at here is God saying, you know, every single one of you are going to give an account to me as to what you did with your life. The book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this is not talking about do you belong to God or not? Is he your father? Uh, do you believe in Jesus? Are you a Christian? It's not that judgment. That's different. This is for those that have made that step of faith and they belong to God and now they're, they're, in, his, uh, they're in his family, but we are still gonna have to stand before God someday. And I say that because that's the motivation for wanting to live a better story. Think about what the apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. This is the attitude that I want to have. He says this, and now little children, he was so full of love. He loved all the people he's writing to. He's not writing to little children, little children. He's writing to everybody that he loves so dearly at any age, but he calls them little children. He says, because he was old. He says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. To have a boldness and to have a confidence, not in an arrogant way that says, yep, that's right, God, let me show you everything I did with my life, but rather to be able to look on that day, to look at God and Jesus Christ, your savior and say, well, I'm broken and man, I've got a whole landscape full of failures but by your grace and by the power of your spirit, man, I've, I tried my best and we were able to see some, some, some good things happen. Not because I did anything, but because you were working through me. So, so Jesus, here, here it is. This is yours. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of what you were doing. But I want you to think about that for, for a minute. I'm not trying to be you know, a big downer here this morning, but just think about standing before God. And what if that were to happen today? And you're looking back and we got to give an account for our resources, for the various capitals that we've been given financially and physical time and intellectual time and everything else that we're spending all this capital on all these different things. And what kind of account would we give if that were to happen today? And that's why it's so important for us to be thinking about the chapters that are being written every single day and to think about the story of our lives. So today we're talking about, um, I decided to stay. How many opportunities have been lost in your life because it was easier to leave than to stay? Last week we talked about, um, I decided to go, the idea that we're here and we're being propelled out into something different. The idea of comfort being comfortable versus an adventure that God was calling us into and going somewhere. And today we're talking about the idea of greener grass versus faithfulness, sticking it out, not quitting, staying. Mark chapter five, we enter into a crazy narrative. It's one of the ones that I've always wondered about. It's a curious tale of truth that actually happened, but, um, Let's go ahead and dive into the text here because we have a lot to talk about here this morning. This is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the book of Mark chapter five, starting in verse one. It says this, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the um, Gerasenes. Now you need to recognize that this is an area called the Decapolis, 
which really means 10 cities. Okay, sometimes it was eight cities, sometimes it was 12 cities. They kind of came in and out of this association, you know, kind of like the Big Ten. It's not really 10 teams, you know what I'm saying? That's, that was their version. The Decapolis, the 10 cities, right? But these were pagan cities. They were ruled by Rome, but they were given independence. So they were very much influenced by Greek culture and they were very godless. And you need to recognize that as part of the backstory. These were cities that most likely in this region, this area, all the way on the other side of the Sea of Galilee on the east side was one that these disciples had never been to, had been warned about, as a matter of fact. The pagan rituals, the pig sacrifices, all the blasphemy that was a part of of what went on in these cities, they were always warned about staying away from there, right? Picture like Las Vegas, you know, times about 100. What happens in the Decapolis stays in the Decapolis, you know, that's, that's the way things were. And as a matter of fact, in the account of the, uh, the, the prodigal son, uh, when they talk about a distant country, most commentators believe this is what they were talking about. You could see it all the way over across, across the Sea of Galilee from where the disciples lived. You could see the shadows of these evil cities. And so now this is where they're going. Verse two, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs. Hello. A man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay, so you talk about a wake-up call for these disciples. All right, now, now listen. They recognize that this is a very evil, dark place that they're going. One chapter right before, at the end of chapter four, what does that uh, little caption say before that last paragraph in your Bible? Jesus calms a storm. That's right before they enter into this moment. So you got to remember for the ancients, for the disciples, for many, they feared the ocean and big bodies of water. It was called the abyss or the underworld. And they were deathly afraid of it. Because it was so unknown, it was so dark. Even in biblical literature, you see that is, a, that is a picture of evil. You see in the book of Daniel, you see in Revelation, things coming out of the sea. And that's what they believed. They believed that that was the underworld of darkness where demons and evil spirits and huge monsters were. Right? Even when Jesus was there walking on the water, you remember? Coming back to the disciples, they, they feared him because what did they think it was? His ghost. They thought it was a spirit. So here in the middle of the night, not only do they have to go over the underworld, the abyss, but this massive storm comes that Jesus was asleep at the time and they woke him up. He calmed everything. So that was harrowing experience number one. Now they're going to the Decapolis, harrowing experience number two. I'm just going to stop saying that word because it's a big word. And then they go to this graveyard and immediately they see this man possessed by a devil, a zombie, if you will. Any Walking Dead fans here? All right, you've seen the commercial anyway. All right, so picture this crazy scene where this guy possessed by the devil comes out of a graveyard in the middle of the night in this evil empire, naked, 
screaming and yelling and violent, and you're given a little bit of the backstory. We don't know how long this man had been living there. Could have been years, could have been decades. But for some reason, he was causing trouble in the town. Nobody could stop him. Nobody could chain him up. And so he was completely ostracized, left alone in the graveyard to get up yelling and screaming and shrieking in the middle of the night. Only a distant uh, echo of cry from the townspeople. And they knew that he lived there and they knew that he was evil and something was wrong. So you notice also it says that he used to take a stone and he used to cut himself and he had no clothes on. So the nature of evil and demonic possession is they want to destroy the image of God. And so how about this man now, made in the image and likeness of God, cutting himself constantly, not having the dignity to clothe himself. Everything good about humanity in the sense of you are an image bearer of God and you've been given a body to protect and to have modesty with has been thrown out the window as this man was just a representation of what the enemy wants to do. So this guy comes running down as the welcoming party. So verse seven, crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. So you get a little bit more of the story that this man's not just possessed by one demon. He's possessed possibly by hundreds, if not thousands. Because if you remember the story from being in church, Jesus immediately calls the demon out of him. And the demons go to a nearby hillside where there are 2,000 pigs that are grazing on the hillside. And the evil spirits go into them. They cascade down the mountain into the water. Now, what in the world does all of this have to do with what we're talking about? I decided to stay. <laughs> Somebody laughed pretty heartily. They're like, I was asking myself the exact same question. Preacher. Get on with it. Well, we got the first element of the story, which is the demon possession. And then we've got the Jesus possession. All right. Jesus healed him. It was miraculous. It was amazing. Pick up the story in, uh, in verse 14. The herdsmen, the shepherds, they fled. They told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was about and what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. So enter into the scene. The people run away. I can't believe it. All these pigs are gone. And the townspeople come back. The man was now healed. It says that he was clothed. So just imagine that. If you spent decades without clothes, what is it going to be like to have clothes back on again? What is this covering that we have? And where did they come from? Hey, Peter, you know, you got a pair of pants? Let's help our man out here, please. Please, good heavens. Somebody help him out. But one way or another, now he's closed. And what does it say that he's doing? He is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, this is important because you need to recognize this is the posture of discipleship. 
kneeling down at the foot of Jesus, the one who had saved him, the one that had healed him. He's saying, I want to be here. I want to listen to you teach. I will follow you. I will give you my all. Now notice the reaction of the townspeople. It says that they were afraid at the end of verse 15, verse 16. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened. And the demon possessed man and the pigs, verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They began to beg him, implore him. You have to leave. We don't know what's going on here. But all I know is all these pigs that we own, this was our money. These were our possessions. They are now gone. So you need to leave. I want you to think about that for a second. They begged him. These townspeople were so evil. They were more concerned with their material goods than with the man who had experienced God. They were more concerned about financial capital than the fanatic captive who had been set free. They were more concerned with their lifestyle than with a new life that had been given. So they begged Jesus to leave because they were threatened. You need to understand as a side note, every week we're talking about this and decisions to make. You need to understand this is going to threaten your comfort in the way of life as you know it. If you choose to really live for God in this respect and to make these major decisions, there are going to be some consequences. And when Jesus came to town and they see the difference that he made, they didn't like it. How do you compare that with the man's response? Verse 18, as he, that is Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Then you've got that same word. You've got the townspeople begging him to leave. And then you've got the demon-possessed, healed man begging to leave with him. He's saying, I want to go with you. Can't you just picture the scene almost stepping into the boat as they're kind of, you know, getting ready to shove off and done with this region of the Decapolis. And he's coming. He's like, please, I'm begging you. Let me come with you. I want to share my story. I want to be with you, Jesus. I want to travel around. I want to go. And as you think about Christ, how could this not be the ideal candidate for discipleship? A man who he had healed miraculously. Think about the story that he could tell as he goes around from town to town to town, all over preaching to thousands of people. Think about this personal testimony. Think about this sideshow of this demon-possessed man and, and what great advantage it would be to have him go with Jesus to go to far off lands and travel and share and spread the gospel. But that wasn't what Jesus had for him to do. Read in the next verse, verse 19. And he, that is Jesus, did not permit him. Stop, stay here. Nope, sorry. Get that foot out of the boat. Stop. You can't come with me. And he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. In other words, he's saying, stay here. This is where you live, so go home. And all these townspeople, you know them, and they know you. Stay here. 
I know that it would be a lot better if you came and I can see some advantages to that, but I've got something else in mind for you. I want you to stay. And you can imagine him looking around at all these townspeople that he had terrorized. You know, think about all the shame that this guy had screaming and yelling and they had seen him naked. You know, like how much easier would it be to be like, nope, I'm out of here. Sorry, I'll tell this story, but a long way off. And Jesus is saying to him, I've got you right where I want you. I know it's going to be harder to stay here. And I know there's an allure to traveling off to greener pastures, but I want you to stay. Look at what he said in verse 20. And he, that is the demon-possessed man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Man, if you're a note-taker, if you're a circler or an underliner or a starer, I want you just that, man, just mark up that 19 and 20. Because that's a huge concept for us this morning. So I don't know what's going on in you and your life, but I'm here to tell you right now in our culture, in our society, we are almost conditioned to always be looking for what's better and what's next and what's going to be better for us and what's going to be more comfortable, more convenient, a better deal. And I don't know what that application is for you here this morning. Maybe it's a neighborhood that you live in, maybe the house that you're in. And maybe you're like, man, we just want to get out of here. There's just been, there's been crime and there's these neighbors that are really annoying and the school system's not that great. And we just want to leave and we just want to go over here. We want to take this step up in, in our culture and our society. And we want, to, we want to go over here. I'm not saying that's bad. God is the judge of that. But maybe God desires for you to stay. Maybe it's a work situation where the team that you're on or the team that you have or the boss that you have or something else, it's just coming down on you and there's pressure and there's just, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable and you just can't stand the people that you work with and you'd much rather shoot out over here and just start something brand new because it would be a lot easier. And maybe God's word for you this morning is I want you to stay. And maybe for you, it's some other job opportunity or moving, moving out to a different state or something like that. I don't know what it is. I'll let the spirit of God do the application for you. But all I know is you weigh those two things out and it looks like one's a whole lot nicer than the other. Be with Jesus, see the miracles, hang out, travel around, go on an adventure, tell my story. Or live here in the darkness, in the debauchery, and the shame and the memories and the reputation. Jesus said, I want you to stay. Could it be that the most fertile grounds for you is not going to be the greener grass, but to plant yourself fully right where you are right now? God had this man exactly where he wanted him to be. I'm going to show you a quick video here highlighting um, a couple from our church that, that really made the decision that they wanted to stay. They had every right in the world to go off and retire and spend leisurely days golfing 
and sitting on a rocking chair and enjoying out, spending the rest of their sunset years watching the sunset go down. But instead, they decided, I want to stay here. I want to impact. Check it out. As a career, I worked for Corning Incorporated for about 40 years and doing a number of things in manufacturing as well as in the procurement area. And uh, in the early part of my career, we had an opportunity uh, offered to us to move to several different locations. So we moved to Cleveland, we moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, and had a chance to move to Australia for several years. So that was exciting. So as we were nearing the retirement age, um, our family situation with three adult daughters was that uh, they had all moved down here. And they moved down here and uh, it was our turn to move down after them. Um, we, we went to all these different churches as we were uh, looking to um, figure out where, where we should live. And um, we went to a lot of good churches, but we didn't get a sense of this is the church God wants us to be at. Um, this is the one he wants us involved in till we found Northwest. And then we knew both of us the first time we were there that that was the church God wanted us to serve at. Well, since we've had a lot of experience in, in, in being involved, it was natural for us to continue. When we reached the retirement stage, it wasn't like, well, let's just stop and we've done our thing, let's go off and do something different. I think the neat thing about being retired is you have more time um, to serve and be connected with your church. I mean, I, I only ever worked part-time, so I always had time to, to, um, to serve in, in a variety of ways. Um, with Tom working full-time in, in a pretty um, time-intensive job, he was limited in the amount of, of, of serving he could do um, during those work years, and now he's free, and he's, he's just able to do so much more. So in, in our landing here in Cary, uh, we uh, end up living in Carolina Preserve, which is a 55 and over active community, not too far from where the church is. And uh, that's where we're able to serve in, in a number of ways, including the community service days uh, where we've been able to reach over the last year more than 120 different individuals with some simple tasks like lifting and climbing ladders that they shouldn't be doing <laughs> in, at, their, at their stage in life here. In our current culture, people are so busy and they've got all they can do on the weekend to get their kids um, organized into church on any kind of regular basis, much less be involved in other things. Early in your faith process, you don't necessarily understand that, that part of what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian is serving rather than, than just coming to church on Sunday and being served. What we find sometimes is, you know, people just come to church on Sunday. They don't get involved any time other than that. I think that's, they miss out on a lot by doing that. But I think what drives them there maybe is uh, um, just the amount of time they have. You know, it, you got 24 hours a day, everybody has the same starting point. Okay, but what you do with your time, how you spend it. If you've got children, clearly you want to spend that with them. But can you then model perhaps a, a stronger behavior, stronger faith by showing them that you are in fact committed to the church more than just on Sunday morning? So I think that's an opportunity for people. Parents may not look at it that way. But uh, if you, I, th I think the rewards are great. You know, you're helping other people and you can share your experience with other people in some way, shape or form that will help them in their, in their journey. We're Tom and Jackie Croft, and we're so glad we decided to stay involved. Isn't that sweet? Yeah, here's a couple. Here's a couple that could have uh, retired on a lake house and, and, and just been disengaged. 
but instead chose to buy a house in the suburbs so that they could stay engaged, so that they could bloom where they were planted, so that they could impact the people around them. And God blessed them with an awesome little lake house about an hour, hour and 15 minutes away. We've been there as a staff. We've been there. But what's so great is, you know, your average people, they, uh, they're leaving on the weekend, right? As soon as they're done with work, they're out of here and they're going away to the mountains or going to the beach or going to a lake house or something. With Tom and Jackie, it's like during the week, we'll spend a couple of days hanging out there. But they're almost crossing paths with everybody else because they're saying, no, we want to be engaged and we want to be around people on the weekend. We want to stay involved. It's awesome. So I don't know where that lands with you here this morning. The idea of staying rather than going to greener pastures is one that I believe is a prominent, prominent concept. In my own story, some of you guys know that Brian and I worked together at uh, Colonial Baptist Church on the other side of town, uh, other side of Cary, and uh, from 2000 to 2005. And so I was kind of an assistant student ministry pastor, worked with him. We felt like God was moving us to something different, so we moved up to the great state of Michigan in 2005. I said the great state of Michigan, to the great city of Detroit area. And I just want to tell you that we feel like we obeyed God. He, he wanted us to go open this up. Every, you know, that, that, that was good. That's what God wanted, right? But then when Brian began to uh, think about and make plans to plant a church up in this area and was no longer at Colonial, he called me. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I was driving down the road and he told me that he was announcing his resignation and he was going to be praying about and planting a church up here in this part of town. Literally, my legs started shaking. Literally. I'm like, what? I can't believe this. He's like, yeah, wow. And then a month later, and not too long later, I got another phone call from somebody. Hey, you know, Brian's leaving now. We know that you know the students, you know the leaders. What would you think about coming back? And you need to know that that first year that I was up in Michigan was incredibly dark. And I'm not just talking about the fact that it got dark at 3.30 in the afternoon <laughs> and for six months in the winter. No, but it was a great church, but I'm just saying it was rough going, man. We left an amazing group of students and great leaders, student ministry leaders, deep-rooted friendships, and just, all right, here we are. And it was that first year, man, it was miserable. I remember being on a retreat, and, uh, you know, like I always do, I'm just walking up and down the, the, the bus, and I'm talking to kids and everything, and there was um, people that didn't like us coming in, you know, like kind of ruled the youth group type of thing. And I can remember one girl pulled me aside, a high school girl. She's like, um, just so you know, I heard those guys talking back there. And they said, if you come back there one more time, they're going to slam a ukulele against your head. <laughs> Threats of physical violence. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I'm like, what in the world? And the weekend was a disaster and it was terrible. And Kids were making up lies about us and it was just awful, right? But we're up there and then I remember like when the, we got those phone calls and that idea came and we're like, oh, I don't know. And I was really, really tempted for about two minutes because initially, yeah, to leave all this and I'd love to just wash my hands at this whole thing, be like, ah, it's not really working. They're not really getting what we're trying to do and, you know, and go back down to people that we loved and a place that we loved. 
But we knew after about 60 seconds, that can't be what God has for us. He didn't just call us up here to give up that quick. And we ended up staying at that amazing church for nine years and saw incredible, fruitful ministry and growth because we decided to stay. There's three things I want to close here with um, that will help us process through what does this mean if you decide to stay. Number one, it'll teach you perseverance. It'll teach you perseverance. The book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse one and two is kind of the verse that we've been springboarding off of for this entire series. It says, therefore, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with endurance, with perseverance. Let us throw off all the sin that so easily entangles us and weighs us down. As you look at your life and your situation and your story, Maybe that's one thing that God wants to be building into you. Notice it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that began each and every one of our stories. He's the author. He's the one that started it, but he's also the perfecter. That means he's coming alongside with us and he's hammering it out weaknesses and he's turning up the fire on occasion to burn out impurities. That's what we see in the beginning of First uh, Peter chapter one, right? Testing of our faith, burning out the impurities, teaching us perseverance. Number two, it's going to help you understand God's master plan. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27 is where Paul is, is there on the, on the mountain and he's talking to all these intellectuals and he says, do you not know that the very boundaries of your house were ordained by God? And that God is very near to us right now and that some of you will reach out and, and you will find him because he's right here. But don't you recognize that where you are right now is not an accident. I want you to think about that idea of God's master plan of, you know, maybe those really annoying neighbors next to you or that neighborhood or that work group or that employment or whatever that situation is, that God knows everything going on there. And man, if you left, if you took off, if you decided to go somewhere else, who would reach those people in those cubicles or in that group or on that sports team? Maybe God's got you there for a reason. And he wants you to proclaim and influence by staying. And the third one is deciding to stay will allow you to maximize your influence rather than start over. That's what the man uh, who had the demons did. Verse 20 of Mark chapter five, he went away rejoicing through all the cities, sharing with everyone what God had done. And I love the phrase that it says at the end of verse 20, and everyone marveled. Right? Now, what's also interesting as we close here about this whole concept in this whole story is right on the tail end, Mark chapter four, you know what parable Jesus taught? to his disciples and to the people that were around? The parable of the sower. Going around, throwing seed everywhere and there's rocky soil and there's shallow soil and there's, you know, all these different kinds of soil. 
And then there's fertile soil. And he explained this parable to them. And then he demonstrated it in chapter five because he went to this man and that was the fertile soil. It's pretty unlikely. It's not what they thought. But man, to see that when Jesus said, will it not expand this crop 30 and 60 and 100 fold? Here we've got this man, this demon, this one demon possessed man who was healed. One person who now is going all around the cities and sharing what God has done. And you think about other situations with Jesus, even with his disciples, he would send them out two by two after spending years with them, coddling and training and teaching. Finally, he sent them out, right? Right at the front end of the ministry. One guy, go. And what do we see happen at the end of chapter seven of Mark? You see Jesus visits this area again. I won't read it. Verse 31 and following. But essentially, he comes back and there is such a crowd of people that had gathered around him that had heard this man who would not shut up about what Jesus did for him. That Jesus couldn't even hardly go anywhere. There was such a wide um, audience there now because they had heard the testimony of that one man. And this whole region of the Decapolis ended up being an incredibly important region for the early church. And it was all because one man decided to stay. So I don't know where that lands on you here this morning. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but I just want to challenge you here this morning to think about this story and to think about perhaps the more difficult decision may be the one that is the more fruitful decision in the long run. Let's pray together. Our God, our Father, we just thank you for where you've put us in life. Lord, we thank you for these that have gathered here this morning to hear from you, to learn from your word. And God, I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring to light a decision that someone needs to make here this morning. Choosing perhaps what might appear to be mundane over adventure. Choosing to be faithful rather than chasing after greener fields somewhere else. So God, I just pray that you would awaken our hearts, that you would open our eyes. Lord, that you would allow us have confidence to stand before